Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Ironworks Podcast. My name is Tyler Warner. And I'm Zach, and we're back again continuing to discuss um, through theology and issues of the canon of Scripture. So last time we talked about, uh, Tyler, how was the canon put together? Can we trust that process? How do we know that we have the right books in our Bible? Um, Okay, so we understand why we have those books. Now, that was a long time ago. And there's a lot of people that'll say, oh, well, you know, how do we know that the things that you're reading are the same as those books that somebody put together uh, a long time ago? So how do we know that we're actually reading the same Bible as when it was when it was put together, which I think is a really important question. That is a very important question because you might say we have the same books as back in the day and that there is a theoretical Accurate canon where, yes, we need Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but how do we know for sure that the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that we read today is the same version that was written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? How do we know we're not dealing with like the New Testament special edition or like the director's (laughs) cut where it's been edited and and tampered with? And, And that, in fact, is the accusation that you hear from so many, especially from guys like Bart Ehrman, uh, guys like Richard Dawkins that will come out and say the Bible has been has been changed, it's been corrupted, and they say that like it's true. But the very simple answer that we'll say here at the beginning is that it's not true, that the Bible has not been tampered with. We have remarkable reasons to believe that it's been preserved well. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to we're going to start by talking about uh, the manuscripts themselves that are that compose our Bible and how do we know that they're the right ones and then how do we evaluate the differences between the different manuscripts and then how do we translate them into English so this is a very important a very important episode for us today yeah and, and this, this is an important thing because like you said a lot of people will just kind of they'll throw out that line oh well, you know the Bible is the line I always hear is well the Bible's filled with errors. And then somebody just moves on, you know, and and people throw out that line as if it's, like you said, just it's a known fact. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times believers get concerned about that. and They say, well, is that true? And the the wonderful thing that we're going to start talking about is all this stuff is easy for you to verify and understand as a believer. This is a totally open source, you know, to use a technology term process. You can check all these things. And we have so much evidence to be able to analyze to determine, well, is the Bible still accurately being preserved throughout history? And so let's talk about some of that. Yeah, and I want to say this too, that uh, these are the kind of things that we can confirm. You know, when we talk about like uh, the the deity of Christ and things like that. Well, the Bible bears witness to that, uh, but that's ultimately something that has to be taken on faith. What cannot be taken on faith or should not be subjected to matters of opinion and faith is what we know to be true factually. So we we now have this wealth and abundance of evidence that we can sort through. And so we 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 can't just say things like the Bible's been changed over and over again, uh, and then we say, no, I believe that it hasn't. It, that's not that's not an article of faith. That's an article of, of fact and of history that we can look at at the actual documents themselves. We can look at the history and look at the story. And we are living at a time where archaeology is at its peak, textual criticism is at its peak, and and we are able to see laid out in front of us the remarkable preservation of the Bible. And so I, I hope today we can put it in your hands so that when somebody comes out and says things like, everybody knows the Bible was changed, 
where we can stand on it and say, no, that's that's simply not true because it is, it's a, it's a fact. And then we can discuss matters of faith, which are super important, but it, it's sort of like in a debate, you don't get to have your own facts. And so today we're going to lay out those facts. Yeah. And I think like you said, the, those two things also interact together. I think that's why sometimes people try and just throw out those bold statements about factual issues, because they know that if they can get you to admit that there's cloudiness or ambiguity in issues of fact, then later on, it won't be difficult for them to push you on issues of faith. But the Bible, if if you can verify, and you can, the documentary evidence about the Bible, then that attests to its reliability in the things that it claims. Exactly right. Right? If, where, and then the opposite is true. If you can say, oh, you know what, we don't know where the Bible came from and there's all these errors, then look, I, I agree with you. If that's true about the Bible, why would I agree to anything that the Bible says is true if I can't even verify that the document itself is accurate or, or that I'm reading the right thing, right? So the, these things go together, and that's why it's so important as believers, our understanding of the actual documentary evidence of the Bible. So let's let's get into some of that. How do we let's talk about how we know that we're reading the same document that was written down or is it, you know how can we verify the accuracy of that process of it being preserved and, and given to us? All right. Yeah. Well, let's get into that. We're going to start with the manuscript evidence. So we're going to talk about, obviously, you hold in your hand a an English Bible, if English is your first language, I'm assuming that. You have an English Bible. Obviously, that one was printed not too long ago. So where did the text of that Bible come from? And the easy answer is that it was translated. Well, what was it translated from? And that's what a manuscript is. Now, the thing is, we need to figure out how do we get hold of something to translate in in the first place. So this is what we mean by manuscript evidence. And uh, we're, we're going to start with the Old Testament and we're going to move on to the New Testament. And it's really a lot of fun to talk about the Old Testament because uh, the late 1800s, early 1900s, the Old Testament was very much it was the sport of secular scholars to make fun of it. It had been ripped to pieces through something called higher criticism. Uh, it was it was basically assumed. It was common knowledge, to use that phrase again. It was common knowledge that the Old Testament had evolved over time. It was unreliable. And people were pointing out, you can see five different authors in this book and two different authors in that book. And these pieces were obviously stitched together. And uh, th this was a lot of speculation and this was a lot of theory and it really wasn't even good academic at the time. But uh, the difficulty was we did not have a lot of manuscripts of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Tanakh, as it's called. We just didn't have a lot of them. The oldest ones we had were from the Middle Ages. So that'd be, you know, 1200, 1300, which is a long time away from, we believe the Exodus was around 1400, 1450 BC, for example. That's a very long time. And uh, people assumed, well, then therefore they must have been corrupted. Nothing can last that long. And uh, the Jews, of course, still were insisting on the reliability of the Old Testament. We were in complete uh, agreement with them at this point. And Zach, why don't you tell us a little bit about how Jews would, would preserve their scriptures, because it really is something to behold. And this was this was the best argument at the time, although we can add to it now. How did they take care of and preserve the the scriptures that they had? Yeah, there's like a there's a, a kind of a scribal religious reverence culture that the Jews have around the actual physical documents of scripture. So, for example, um, the 
I don't know that this was necessarily true later on, but in as far as I know with early Jewish scholars, if they were, for example, writing down the name of God, they would change their clothes and wash in these things in between each letter that they would write down of the tetragrammaton, the four letters of, of God's, you know, holy name. They There's, you know, different communities would do different things like they might if there was a, a Bible that became too messed up and, and, and aged too far to be used, they would bury it like you would bury a, a body right. because they didn't want to dishonor it. They're, there's all these different rules and, and and special steps they had when they were copying down manuscripts to keep from making mistakes. So the the Jews are, you know, the original people of the book, and they took the actual process of, of scribally copying um, the Old Testament documents very, very seriously. Yeah. Uh, and, but, and, and right away there you can see a, a problem in terms of manuscript evidence that uh, if, a, if a copy got all old and worn out, then rather than preserve it, they would dispose of it because right. they didn't want to have something that could potentially be misread, which of course, as uh, I guess at least rudimentary students of archaeology here, we go, no, no, please don't do that. <laughs> right. uh, and we're actually going to come up against more of that because of course, back then and, and even farther back, they weren't really worried about that. But that was the best argument you had. It's like, look at the way they preserve these things now. And, and it's so remarkable, but that didn't seem very scientific. But in the, the winter of 1946 and 1947, this is just post-World War II here. Uh, there was a shepherd in Israel who ended up stumbling upon the greatest archaeological discovery of, of the 20th century. And that's that's no lie. And he, I, what did he, he fell into a well or something like that? Or he threw a rock and it, it broke a pot or something the like that? The second story is what I've heard is that yeah. he was chasing after some, and again, I, this is just kind of a story. I don't, I can't verify this, but he was chasing after some goats or something that he had lost. And he somehow, uh, he threw a rock into one of these caves and he heard pottery breaking. So he went in there thinking, you know, all excited, thinking he was going to find some, some treasure he could sell. And then he was upset when it was just old, you know, scrolls, <laughs> old paper. which of course it's, it's one of the most, you know, amazing literally one of the most priceless archaeological discoveries in history. But Yeah, he discovered what was called the ancient community of Qumran, which was uh, kind of in a lot of ways like a Jewish Amish community uh, yeah, from, they were the, a bit from, weird. from the time of Christ. <laughs> uh, but this discovery is what you know as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And these were uh, documents, thousands and thousands of documents that dated to the time of Christ. So that you're finding all of these carefully, amazingly preserved in the desert sands documents from the time of Jesus. And included in that, of course, were copies of the books of the Old Testament. And so now you've, you've just jumped back, I mean, more than a thousand years, 1500 years to now your oldest copies are far older than the ones we, ha we had at the time. And the texts were, for all intents and purposes, identical to the Old Testament ones already in use. So we're gonna, we'll talk about some of the, the minor differences in a minute. But the point is they looked at these things and they were not changed. So the whole, whole argument forever had been, these things were obviously edited over the time over time to edit uh, to accommodate Jewish changes in theology and belief. But now we jump 1500 years-ish backwards and it's exactly the same. So that, that theory was kind of blowed up because uh, we, we know that Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, was finished around 400 BC. So it's 400 years from Malachi to Dead Sea Scrolls, give or take. 1,500 years from Dead Sea Scrolls to uh, the oldest documents they had at the time. And I'm using round numbers here. There were no changes in the 1,500 years. So it's reasonable to assume that in the 400 years prior to that, 
which was closer, that there would not have been substantial changes made there either. Yeah, and, and it's an important to note because, you know, if if you're not like us and this is not your favorite thing to talk about with all the dates and the scholarly theories and all that, it, just to boil that down, the, before the Dead Sea Scrolls, the, the scholarly theories that were going around were, okay, probably the Old Testament was still getting edited and the, the word they use is redacted or it was still getting put together past the time of Jesus even that was was what was the the mm-hmm. thought now as soon as you find the dead sea scrolls that theory is totally destroyed that's no longer uh, you can't have that as an option anymore because you're literally finding documents from before the time when scholars were saying the bible was still getting put together and and was a fluid document so that theory is out the water out of out of you know discussion now you're you're having discussions about well how you know before the dead sea scrolls when was it still getting put together so the important thing to see here is that a lot of times, and I'm just, this is going to be a general principle that we're going to talk about probably a lot on the podcast. I have learned to be very careful about any theory that starts to be put forward as, well, all modern scholars and archaeologists just know, and then yeah. there's no evidence behind it. Because immediately I find that within 20 to 30 years, you're going to find that that theory is totally contradicted by some form of textual or archaeological evidence. And that's what we found with the Dead Sea Scrolls. If the going theory that, that everything was put together sometime far after Jesus was taken care of by evidence, I'm not going to really be that excited about theories, which now just walk that back a couple years before the Dead Sea Scrolls and say, oh, no, 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 it's it's back here. That's when everything was edited and put together. Yeah. I mean, and the thing is, academic ideas die hard. I mean, just yeah. kind of look at Marxism, for example. It's like you'd think we'd run that experiment enough times. But, it, you know, th- these things still get taught. It's still in the books. So you still see people talking about the multiple authors of the Pentateuch and, and things like that. Uh and, but now, like you said, Zach, it's kind of transitioned to where people now want to spend their time analyzing the final form of the books. And it's a, it's a little bit of uh, duck and weave there where it's like, well, yeah, I mean, obviously there were changes, but there's, we can't possibly know what they were. And, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that we don't have copies of, of variations, substantial variations in the Old Testament. So this theory has kind of been blown to pieces and I think it's still dying a long, slow death. But yeah, it's super uh, it's, sneaky it's what you just said, that. but it's super sneaky what you just said, but that's important to note that because of now finding things like the Dead Sea Scrolls and more and and we're finding now things I don't know, Tyler, we might talk about this in the New Testament, but do you know if those some of those Geniza manuscripts, like where they're finding trash heaps and stuff, do those have Old Testament documents as well, or is it just New Testament documents? I'm not sure about the answer to that question. Uh, I, I really couldn't tell you. Because I know that they're finding some of that stuff, but I guess the, the point I'm trying to make is the, there's enough documentary evidence now for the Old Testament that the argument has transitioned from let's talk a lot about all the old forms that we're kind of conjuring up, the old versions of the Old Testament that we never found evidence for to now, eh, let's not talk about those anymore. We're still going to argue that they existed, but we can't find evidence for them. So let's just talk about the final form of scripture, meaning what you have in your lap. So they've literally done a, a whole flip to now let's only talk about what we actually have in our in our lap, which is what we were arguing for all along, right? It's, it's funny, of course, but yeah, and we're going to get into some other pieces of this too, the the Greek translation of the Old Testament and mm. so on. But the the short version is that we, we are there are no serious contenders arguing that the canonical form of the Old Testament that we have in manuscript format was substantially different than what we have now. Mm. Uh, but when we get to the New Testament. 
So, I mean, Old Testament, from an academic perspective, was touch and go for a while. But New Testament, man, is where we get to show off. Uh, We have what you could call an embarrassment of solid proof of the manuscript of the New Testament. And the the leader on this, as far as I'm concerned, is Josh McDowell, who has done a lot of great work assembling uh, these statistics and these numbers together. He himself began as a skeptic who set out in college to disprove the Bible and ended up getting saved and becoming a professional defender of the Bible. That happens a lot, Zach. Have you noticed that? That guys like C.S. Lewis or Lee Strobel, or they always end up these, you know, you better watch out. If you say, I'm going to take God at his word and, and see if he's wrong, like, people always end up. Yeah, I think Lewis said a young, a young atheist cannot guard his reading too carefully. <laughs> he's got to <laughs> yeah. be very careful what he reads. Right. So again, the same theory has been put out there that the New Testament slowly evolved into the form that we have now. That we talked last time about different books and multiple gospels, but even the ones we have now, people will say, add the the apostles and the writers and the church fathers went back and they changed the documents to fit the sensibilities of the time. And so we cannot be sure of what John or Paul actually wrote. But let's let's evaluate that theory first of all. So before we get to the actual manuscripts of the New Testament documents themselves, well, let's talk about the church fathers. And by church fathers, we typically mean uh, writers, Christian writers from the 100s to the 3 or 400s BC. That That's usually, or AD, excuse me. That's usually the definition of a church father. Now, of all the writings that the church fathers gave, there are more than 86,000 references to the New Testament. And that's not even counting the Old Testament. But the church fathers in those, those couple centuries quoted from the New Testament more than 86,000 times. And every, just about every verse of the New Testament is represented in that figure. So it's not like they were all quoting John 3.16 over and over again, but they quoted widely, tens of thousands of times. And I don't know if uh, you've ever read any Church Fathers, Zach, but First Clement, for example, it was almost tedious having to read through all the different quotations because he'd be like, it's, you know, it's like Paul said, and then he would quote like a chapter and a half of Ephesians (laughs) or something like that. And uh, it's, it's amazing. And that's kind of how these writers were. So I'm going to quote here from Bruce Metzger, who is uh, kind of a, uh, an expert on New Testament textual criticism and that sort of thing. He said, so extensive are these citations. So citations of the New Testament by the church fathers. So extensive are these citations that if all other sources for our knowledge of the text of the New Testament were destroyed, they would be sufficient alone for the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament. (laughs) Did you catch that? He's saying if every ancient manuscript of the New Testament was gone tomorrow, we could still reconstruct almost the entire New Testament just from the quotes from the church fathers. I mean, that's pretty significant, isn't it, Zach? Well, first of all, what it does, and this is just like we're talking about with the Old Testament, we're always trying to see how close as believers can we push the pin for the construction of the document, right? For when when was this together in its final form and accepted and and preserved and everything? How, how far back can we push that pin? And liberal scholars have frequently tried to place that pin somewhere, you know, hundreds and hundreds to thousands of years past when the document was created. Well, if the church fathers, like you just said, basically can provide us a reconstruction of it, let's say at the latest to 300 AD, 
that's actually pushing the pin back pretty far. Yep. And we're going to find out that you can actually go even farther, kind of insanely far with some of these documents that we have now um, to where you can essentially say, hey, there was, and this is going to be important later on when we talk about doctrine that we get from the word of God. If we can right. say that the Bible was present and and not, you know, in, in different forms, but was present in the way that we have it today, and it was read and accepted by the church fathers, which they quoted it constantly. If you can show that date is very, very close to when it was originally written down by the authors when they put pen to paper, then you're, you're you can prove a lot of things about Christian orthodox theology from that as well. Absolutely. I mean, you see, I mean, right away, the church fathers were not creating doctrine out of out of whole cloth. What right. they were doing was they were going back to the scripture and interpreting the New Testament with quotations and exegesis and analysis and even textual criticism in a lot of cases mm -hmm. uh, to establish doctrine. That was how you built doctrine in the early church. You didn't just make stuff up because you were a clever theologian, as, as many people have claimed. So that shows us that the Christians have been people of the book from the very, very beginning. So that's before we even get to the manuscript. So the reason I bring that up is because this is like a fact-checking mechanism that we have. So if you say all these things came way later, well, if a quotation from 150 BC AD, I keep doing that, 150 AD is right. the same thing as what you have much later, then it shows you that, no, 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 this was actually the same from the beginning. So Let's move on from the Church Fathers, and let's talk about the New Testament manuscripts themselves. And what we mean by this, this is an ancient copy of the New Testament. So if you have a manuscript of 3 John, that would be an ancient piece of parchment or vellum or papyrus that has 3 John written on it. So you have manuscripts. You also have things called fragments, which isn't hard to figure out. That's just a, if you only have a piece of it because it was damaged or something like that. It's It's massive. Uh, and it's good that it is massive because remember, inerrancy, inspiration, all those attributes of scripture, they apply to the autographs of scripture. So we do not have the autographs of scripture and there's no point in denying that. We don't have the actual piece of paper that Paul was holding as he finished the letter. And it, that's probably for the best because Christians have historically had a bad habit of worshiping relics and things like that. So we don't have the originals, but what we have are copies and we have lots and lots and lots of copies we have more copies <laughs> yeah. than any other you know we have more copies of the new testament than any other historical document that i'm aware of and it's not, not even, even it's not even like yeah you can't even see the other options from from where the new testament is it's it's really it's really really unique and and that should yep. be exciting as a believer because it means that you have all of this it's like a massive database that you can check every single verse against and ensure that we do have an accurate recording of what the autograph had. Uh, and yeah. that's, it's, it's actually really, not only is it, is it encouraging in your faith, but it's really cool because you just historically, you get that thread all the way back, um, which is, which is really, really cool. Yeah. And we have, we have approximately 5,500 copies of various parts of the New Testament manuscripts. And that means in the original language. It's not even talking about translations. We'll get right. to that. 5,500 copies of various parts of the New Testament in the original language, which is 
huge. I mean, 5,500 copies is almost impossible when you think about what we're trying to do here. The earliest fragment is dated to 120 AD, and that's the John Rylands fragment of the Gospel of John, which is, of course, ironic because John has was held up forever as the one of the latest Gospels written, and we agree with that, but people would say, the theology of John is so robust and so developed with the deity of Christ and the resurrection and the Holy Spirit and all that. It clearly had to have been written much later because the church needed time to develop those doctrines. Well, now I think it, there's one older than it, than it now, but like the oldest copy we have is from the Gospel of John from 120 AD, which means 30 years ish after it was written. Right. That that's. That's incredible. There are more than 50 other of those documents that date within 200 years of their original composition. And that might sound like a long time to you, but you've got to compare that to what we what we have with other ancient documents. So, Zach, talk to me about Homer. Yeah. So, and there's there's a lot of things like this, you know, books that you're used to reading from high school and and you know that we hold up as world classics and then they are, but his the, the amount of historical attestation that we have for those documents is pretty poor compared to the New Testament. So the Odyssey, for example, Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, earliest copies, earliest complete copies we have of the, the Odyssey are dated about 2,200 years after its completion, um, 2,200 <laughs> years after its completion. Like, so for right now, from right now going back, that would be like... 222 BC, if a book was written then. Right. And the earliest copy we had and the, is, is somebody and who wrote it down copy, now. Right. Like, that's the oldest copy. Yeah. Um, is from right now. Histories of Herodotus yeah. are dated about 1300 years after their composition, and we only have eight remaining copies. So that's the other thing. It's not just the age that the copies are from. It's that we have so few that we have no way to know if there are errors in the copies, right? Right. If, exactly. if it was hundreds and hundreds of years and we, you know, let's say we had one from here and then one from a thousand years later, but we had lots of versions of those, we could at least check and see, hey, has that text moved in any way? But with only eight copies, you have no way of knowing. And that, that's the beauty of what we have with the New Testament is we have both lots and lots of copies and copies that go back a very long way. So we can literally look and check all along the way to see, has it changed yet? Nope, it, it, this is the same as back then. Okay, how about this one? Nope, this one is the same as back then. You have like this massive group of, te of texts. Right, let, let, let's put it this way. So we say 200 years, our best copies are within 200 years of composition. That mm -hmm. sounds like a long time. I was like, all right, so 200 years ago for us, 1822. Right. So let's say that we had... Oh, uh, let's see. So that's around the Jackson administration, right? So let's say we had something that was written by Andrew Jackson, and we had about, you know, 50 copies of what he had done that were from then till now, and they're from different dates. So one of them was 10 years later, one of them was 50, one of them was 100, two of them were 150 or so, but they were all the same. That, that's a pretty good indication. Like in terms of history, that wasn't that long ago. And it's like, all right, well, all the they all say more or less the same thing, so it's pretty clear that's what it is. And we just talked about the Odyssey and Herodotus, and those are considered to be well-preserved. Like, nobody really questions that those are what they said substantially, but everybody wants to come after the New Testament. But yeah. let's not just talk well, about... Like, go ahead, go ahead. We have... You're not... That, that imaginary scenario you're narrating where we have something written down by Andrew Jackson, 
Like, no, no, we have. Like, like we have speeches right, and yeah. documents written by Andrew Jackson of the Founding Fathers that have been preserved in very good order from 250 to 300 years ago. Nobody, nobody looks at those documents and says, well, I just don't know that that's what George Washington wrote down because we have documentation and a good chain of evidence that indicates that that's what George Washington's farewell address looked like. Right. So if we can, if we accept that a 200 year, you know, gap there is fine because we have good documentation, then that 200 year gap between, you know, the oldest copies of, let's say, you know, the New Testament and when we believe they're originally written, it's actually, it's basically zero from a historical point of view. Right. Yeah. And, And then when you, when you put it like that, it's like, is anybody going to be spinning wild stories about like that Andrew Jackson or John Quincy Adams like could fly or, you know, <laughs> right. was being worshipped as a as a god? Like it's like we, we can look back and like, really? That's so close. Yeah, it was. Right. So the idea that that happened in the in the early church is, is very unlikely. And the fact that they started saying that from the beginning is huge. But I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. So that's we have the church fathers, 86,000 quotations. We have the manuscripts. That's Greek language, 5,500 copies. Now let's add what are called versions. A version of an ancient document is a translated copy. So to use our Andrew Jackson illustration, which I didn't intend to go this far, but here we are. Uh, Imagine you had a copy of one of his speeches in Spanish. That would be a version. It's not how he originally wrote it, but it's a translated version. Well, in the ancient Greek times, you would have had things translated into Latin, maybe translated into Aramaic, translated into Syriac or Egyptian. We have between 18 and 25,000 translated versions of the New Testament. That's incredibly large. The, the the number of people that took the Bible, translated it, by the way, which tells you the church was translating the Bible from the right. very beginning and did not see a problem with it. And what you do is you take these quotations from the church fathers, you take the 5,500 original language manuscripts, you take the eighteen to 25,000 translated versions, and they corroborate each other. And we have all of this from these early centuries. And... Even when there are variations in the text, which we're going to talk about, it's like you've got so much that you can be, at least especially in terms of other documents, you can be basically certain that the what was originally written is in there and is discoverable. And with so much, because it would be impossible with, if let's say again, just the illustrations help us, I think. Let's say that you had that speech from Andrew Jackson and somebody wrote down two copies and they were totally different. Well, how would you know which one was the correct one? Which one was what Andrew Jackson really said? Somebody could have taken, seen your first copy, written a totally different one that says he said all these other different things. And then they could argue, no, this is really who Andrew Jackson was and what he said. And you wouldn't have any way to check which of those was correct. But if you had 10,000 copies of Andrew Jackson's speech, and then someone wrote down three new copies that said something totally different and said, no, this is really what he said. It would be very easy for you to say, um... I have much more evidence that this is what he said than your exactly. copy. And that yeah. this is why it's very important why the process of textual criticism is something that actually Christians should be excited about is because it's our way of seeing how through this massive group of texts that the Lord has allowed to be preserved, we can actually watch historically where somebody tries to do what everybody says always was happening. Someone tries yep. to edit or redact or change what scripture says. 
and we can watch it happen and then we can see how the total body of texts corrects that and says, no, that's we know that's goofy because we have all this evidence to correct it. Exactly. There's a quote from F.F. Bruce, who is the Mac daddy of this subject, in my opinion, and talking about these numbers, 86,000 church father quotations, 5,500 Greek manuscripts and fragments, between 18 and 25,000 translated versions of the New Testament. He says, quote, the variant readings about which any doubt remains among textual critics of the New Testament affect no material question of historic fact or of the Christian faith and practice. What he's saying there is because we have so much evidence, the claims that the church has have always made are substantiated that yes there are differences between them but like you were just saying zach there are so many of these manuscripts just the number of copies we have is so huge that that nobody is able to come in and say we don't really know if jesus rose from the dead because it's really pretty much split down the middle that that is not the case right it is simply not the case you can accept you you need to know this before we get into the process you just need to know that if, if they had found the the defeater, as it's called, if they had found the silver bullet to take down the Bible, you would have heard about it by now. It's not there. Well, you, in, in other words, you can now say, if you want to be a historical and a scientific person, you can say, I don't accept what the Bible attests. I, I, I have decided that what is written down in the Bible, I will not accept those claims. But you don't get to say, I don't think, I mean, looking at the evidence from what I've seen, you don't get to say as a historical and scientific person, these, I do not accept that this document records what these people said. You can't say that. Yeah, that's just not, you, you that, can't not, do that. That's it's, not it's possible. So so you, you have to say, well, yes, they said that, they recorded that only a brief number of years after the, when they were saying the events happened, but for some reason they're wrong or I disagree with them, you can say that. But you can't say these people didn't write this down or what they wrote down was corrupted or what they wrote down is materially different from when they wrote it to now or those things just don't hold water anymore. Yeah, and, and remember those numbers, you know, listener, <laughs> when someone says, oh, the, the, it's just been changed so much and we can't possibly know what it originally said. Remember, 86,000 quotations, 5,500 manuscripts, 18 to 25,000 versions. Yeah, we do know what it said. And the process of how we figure that out is called textual criticism. We've already used this term. Zach gave us a great illustration of it with our our ongoing Andrew Jackson metaphor. Uh, Let's talk about textual criticism. This is, the first thing I want to say, a good thing. We hear the term criticism and we think of all kinds of things. We think of higher criticism, which was the German scholars that were dismantling the scriptures. You might think of critical theory uh, and it's kind of related to those ideas, but this is something entirely different. This is not critiquing the text. Textual criticism means we are going to look at the stack of copies we have and go through this process to determine and understand what it originally said. Because as we've said, we do not have the autographs. We do not have the actual piece of paper on which John wrote the book of Revelation. But what we do have are copies upon copies And admittedly, no sense in shying away from this because it's not a problem in the end. They're not all identical to each other. And that would seem to make sense, especially among those translated versions between 18 and 25,000. They're not all exactly the same. Not every copy of John, every manuscript of John is exactly the same or of Romans or of anything else. So there must be a process 
in order to compare these things and try to seek out what the original autograph would have said. And this is, uh, in theory, a very simple process. You look at the variant readings, you compare them to each other, you evaluate the differences, and you make an informed decision. And that's called textual criticism. And that's, a, I think, I'll just say, I've, I've definitely heard Christians who, maybe rightly, are, are kind of concerned when they hear that term, they say, well, textual criticism, that's, you know, you're, you're looking at the Bible and trying to poke holes and prove things wrong. It's really important that you know, if you're listening to this, that the, there's a difference between things like, let's say, higher criticism or biblical criticism or whatever, the, the, there's terms that are used to essentially mean we're going to try and see if we can interpret what we think you know, the holes in the in what's in the biblical narrative, or we're going to try and, you know, find out, well, here's what we originally think it said and how it was edited. That's not what textual criticism is. Textual criticism is, like you said, the process of looking at, at the various documents we have and trying to make sure what do we think is the best reading of these that is that agrees with what the original said. And we can prove that not just because of what we think, but it's a, it's a kind of a scientific art of looking at all of that evidence and following to where it points. Right based on all the documents we have. And again, we can only do this because of how many documents we have. You can't do textual criticism on one document copied two times. You can do it on tens of thousands of different documents because you have yes. enough data to actually analyze. Right. So uh, textual criticism, good thing. Higher criticism, not a good thing. They are not the same thing. So let's get into this here. Uh, let's start with the Old Testament. Now, so this is what we're trying to do. The process of textual criticism, you are sitting in a room. Somebody brings you giant stacks of copies and manuscripts and says, I would like you to compare these and determine for me what the original said. Because I don't have the original, but I got all these copies, so please figure it out. So, I mean, it's basically as simple as laying out all the copies on the floor and uh, going through what amounts to a process of elimination. Now, we start with the Old Testament. We do not have as many copies of the Old Testament. We just talked about that. Uh, so, most Old Testament textual criticism is going to look at internal evidence. And uh, because of the way the Old Testament came about, and because of a few idiosyncrasies of the Hebrew language, this makes, I think, for a very interesting process. So, the ancient Hebrew text that we possess and that we translate is called the Masoretic Text. So, if you look at the preface of your Bible, typically it's going to tell you what versions, what manuscripts it's pulling from, and the Masoretic text is almost invariably what's translated in English Bibles and other languages as well. Hebrew is typically written without vowels. There are no vowels in the Hebrew language. I mean, Zach, you've been to Israel many times. I've never been. I mean, that's, that's still the case, right? Yeah, and, and so there's little, what they do instead, they have little pointings. That there's, they don't have letters for the vowels, but they have a little point that indicates, a little mark that indicates where the vowels go. But you don't that's that's my I've heard people say that that's basically it's it's for first graders it's the same thing as like sometimes in a first grade handwriting book they have the lines for how you write it you yeah. wouldn't put that up on a road sign right and so in the same way in the biblical manuscripts we have we don't have those little vowel pointings they would, wouldn't write those down you just it's understood for a Hebrew speaker I know where the vowels go 
Right. So what the so that that's how Hebrew works. Is it was written without vowels, as are other Semitic languages, by the way. Which is why sometimes if you see somebody who maybe he's uh, a Muslim or something, and he has an Arabic name, and it seems like a bunch of consonants just shoved all together, that's why, because uh, they're understood by a native speaker, but they're not always written. Now you can understand why this could be problematic, to use a funny word, uh, for translation. Because if you're trying to translate something and you don't have the vowels, there is the possibility for misunderstanding. Especially because Hebrew, uh, the vowels all use, or the, the verbs, excuse me, the verbs all use the same vowel structure. There are several vowels that sound alike. Uh, so in context, it's usually pretty easy to figure out, but there is the possibility for misunderstanding. So the Masoretes, uh, who lived several hundred years after the destruction of Jerusalem. So they they went through the Hebrew text and they added vowel pointing to the text, which is why Hebrew vowel pointing is under the letters because they did not want to disturb the actual written text of scripture. So they went in and added vowels to the text. And by adding, I mean they were putting them in as they were understood. They were not making them up. So this is a Masoretic text is a... Hebrew text that has vowel pointing from the Masoretic scribes. They also did a few other things. Uh, one of them was called the Kathiv Kere readings. Because sometimes as they went through and they would come at upon something that didn't seem to make sense, maybe it was an obvious error in the uh, manuscript they had, like it would uh, just use a word that just kind of was wildly out of context. And they would say, you know what it is, is uh, this, this letter R is probably supposed to be a, a letter N in Hebrew. They're very similar. They look a lot alike. And there's that's a kind of a... Uh, occupational hazard going through Hebrews. A lot of the letters look very much the same. So, but because they had such a regard for the word of God, they didn't want to just strike it out and put something new in there. So they would add what they believed was the proper reading and they would leave what was originally written. So the term ketiv in Hebrew means what is written and kere means what is read. So what that meant is as you are reading through the text, sometimes you come upon a place that it has, there's a special marker and there are two different words. The kathiv is what was originally there. The kare is what the Masoretes added and that is what is read. So when they're reading the Hebrew text out loud, they will read the what's called emendations that the, the Masoretes med, made. So uh, even there, Zach, you can see in the the preservation of the text, that even when they thought this manuscript, not that God was wrong, but that this manuscript has somewhere along the line been corrupted, maybe a typo, maybe somebody skipped a line in writing it down or something. Even so, they were so careful about it that they left what they believed was a variant reading there while they included their own, uh, their and that's own just conclusions. Further confidence. It's just the, it's just like, um, the biblical language that the New Testament is written in Koine Greek, how I've often thought that that's just such a historical gift from the Lord, that the Lord uses a period in history where there's this trade language that has very specific ways of phrasing things where you can mean, oh, it means this because it uses this word, and that's the language that God uses. In, in the same way, I think that the, the, the Hebrew Jewish um, just scribal culture 
is such a gift to us now because you can see, like you said, they're they're not just striking it out and saying, no, I think it should mean this. They're preserving both the original reading and the document they had and what they think the variant reading should be so that we have all the evidence needed to determine what we think the best reading is even thousands of years later. So we have just so much data that they're giving us very carefully, which is a really, really cool thing. Yeah, you can see the high view of scripture here, right? That which is so important that... The, the, so when you see something like that and then somebody says, oh, they were just changing things. It's like, no, they weren't. Because look at how even when they felt like a change was needed, they didn't really want to. So anyway, textual criticism. That's what we have. The Masoretic text. Textual criticism for the Old Testament involves a couple things. Number one, we're going to evaluate the vowel pointing of the Masoretic text to see if there might not be a better vocalization. So as we said, the vowels were added hundreds of years after the fall of Rome. They were not original to the text. They're, and in almost every case, they're, they're pretty good. But every now and then, scholars will come upon something and say, you know, they, they did this, but when I compare it, for example, to the Septuagint, which we'll get to in a minute, uh, or if I look at the context, it really seems like it should be this and not that. I think they thought that was saying this word, but this one might be better if we change, let's say, this E to an A. And if you do that, which is a radical step and shouldn't be done lightly, but if you do that, all of a sudden this verse makes a whole lot of sense. So that's that's part of textual criticism, evaluating the vowel pointing, comparing the Kathiv Kare. So they'll look at those and sometimes in technical commentaries, they'll say, uh, yeah, they thought it should be this, but in reality, the older one makes a whole lot more sense. So we should keep that. Or it seems like they made this and they might've had a, a, a motivation behind why they made this change. So again, th these things were not part of the autograph. So they are up to be evaluated. And it's, it is true that sometimes guys can be too free with that. And they end up saying, I'm just going to disregard what they said. I know better. You know, I understand ancient Near Eastern culture better than they ever did, and which is very hilarious to me for somebody that lives in like Michigan or something like that. Uh, so if you've ever been reading your Bible, usually in the Old Testament, and it says a footnote, there's a footnote that says something like, the text could also read, then what that is, is usually you're looking at a vowel pointing issue. You're looking at the fact that, all right, we could tweak this and it would say that, that might make more sense, but we're not confident enough about it, just put it in the text. So, you know what, let's just put it in the footnotes so that people can look at it and, and read for themselves. Uh, so that that's, that's the first thing, is in checking out what the Masoretes did, which in almost every case, they did a fabulous job and we're, we are highly indebted to them. But, uh, you know, it's okay to come back and, and evaluate things. So uh, that's, that's the first thing. Uh, the next thing that you do is evaluating more from an external process, which is a comparison with the Septuagint. And I've already mentioned this. Let me tell you what it is. If you've ever seen uh, the, the Roman numerals LXX, which stand for 70 uh, in your Bible or in a biblical book, that stands for the Septuagint. You can hear 70 in there because sept is like 70, right? This was the official Greek translation of the Old Testament, traditionally done by 70 scribes, which is where the name comes from. It was done before the time of Christ. So when you hear Septuagint, this is the official Greek translation made between the years of Malachi and Matthew. And it's therefore older than the Masoretic text that we have. The Masoretic text was updated, as we said, hundreds of years after Christ. The Septuagint was written, although it's not in the original language, a few hundred years prior to Christ. And that is the version that is most often quoted in the New Testament, by the way. 
So very often, if a passage is confusing in the Hebrew, what we'll do is we'll compare it with the Greek and we'll say, all right, how did these scholars from all these thousands of years ago understand this passage? And sometimes when you see how they translated it, it tells you also how they interpreted that. I think that's pretty cool that we we have that. Yeah, and again, it just I'm not to, to harp on this here, but there's... I'll probably mention this again a little bit, but I just, I want to note how decentralized, that's another technology word, but how decentralized this whole process is. Meaning at no time has the biblical text ever been under the control of one group of people or one person so that they could manipulate it and change it without other people knowing or stopping that from happening. Right. So for example, how, how do I, how can I tell you that? Well, look, if you can look at a certain document for, let's say you, you want to look at the gospel of John, or you want to look at something like that, and you can now compare, Hey, look, we can compare, you know, this, this thing over here with this translation and this, and we can look at them all together. And if, as those agree, you can see how many different people, some of whom didn't even know who each other were, weren't in connection with each other, were documenting and translating the thing in the exact same way. So there wasn't any ability for someone to come in from the outside and say, no, I say it, it says this now. Yeah. There was no central Bible changing authority. They can't go pick up point. all of the other translations and documents that exist and get rid of them because they were widespread. Same thing is true with the Old Testament. You can compare the Maz- the Masoretes, one community of scribes who are over here doing this work and this project to the, the translators of the Septuagint. And you can see that their agreement shows you that this process was decentralized. There wasn't one, even with the Jews who were very orderly in the way they did it, there wasn't necessarily one group of people who come in and say, no, it says this now we're changing it because you could have checked that openly against all of these other documents. Right. You can, sometimes people will envision the medieval Catholic church uh, back into the, t- the time of Christ just before and after that there was a central authority that that hammered everything down. It's just, that's simply not the case. Yeah. Not historically the case. So that's that's the process. When we have the Old Testament, we're trying to determine what the original said. We're going to look at what the Masoretes did. We're going to look at the vowel pointing, the Kathiv Kare readings. Uh, we're going to compare it to the Septuagint, which is older, but not in the original language. So uh, it, it is helpful, but back translating a translation is sometimes not a, not a great idea. That's why we, we start with the Masoretic text usually. And uh, other things that will be done is they'll, they'll look at quotations from traditional Jewish literature uh, from the intertestamental period and similar to how the church fathers quoted the New Testament. And we say, did anybody quote this differently? And this is less, less common with the Old Testament. Uh, they'll look at cognate languages to Hebrew. Sometimes we have a word that only occurs once in the Old Testament, and we're not quite sure exactly what it means. But if there's a well-attested Ugaritic or Akkadian word that is very closely related to that, those uh, cognate languages, meaning like Spanish, uh, Italian, and Portuguese are cognates. They're very mm-hmm. similar to each other. So same thing with Hebrew and, and Arabic and, and that. Uh, you'll, you'll go through that process. And uh, yeah, you'll you'll look to sometimes even to the New Testament. Now, obviously, a, a Jewish scholar won't do this, but we'll say, how did the New Testament translate it? And that'll give us uh, some indications of what the original manuscript might have said, too. So that's the Old Testament. Now, remember, the New Testament is going to be a little more complicated, although probably much easier from a technical standpoint to arrive at an accurate answer because we just have so much textual evidence. And so the New Testament process will spend a lot more time looking at the external evidence rather than looking at the internal. We'll do both, but we want to make sure we have the right manuscript before we start evaluating the text within that. So again, if you see a footnote in your Bible that refers to the best manuscripts, 
And I know some people that really don't like that <laughs> because uh, they it's it sounds bad, right? It sounds wrong to say the best manuscripts. Like, well, just just use the the real one. It's, well, this is the process you're seeing into <laughs> it, right? We we have again. 86,000 quotations, 5,500 manuscripts, 18 to 25,000 versions. So when you're saying, what does it say here? It's like, well, it could it could really go one of two ways, but the best ones say this, meaning the best attested, the best preserved, and so on. So you're getting a, a little insight into the textual critical process when you do that. And that's why we have footnotes, because sometimes uh, two readings are so very well attested that you might as well include them both. So as we get into New Testament textual criticism, there are a number of commonly accepted rules. And there's a man named David Allen Black who wrote a book called New Testament New Testament Textual Criticism. And he lays them out and he didn't come up with them, but uh, he puts them in a very easy way to digest. So we'll follow his outline here. Once we've got all the men, remember you're in the room and your boss brings you, you know, tens of thousands of, of documents and says, find out what the original said. How are you going to go about that? What are the rules you're going to follow as you lay them all out on the floor and compare them? So number one, we're going to give precedence to the older manuscript. Now, Zach, that seems pretty self-evident, but why don't you explain why do we want to give preference to an older manuscript as opposed to a newer one? It just makes sense, right? If, if you're if you've got two documents and you're both they're both manuscript versions of a document that's even further back than both of those, you know, over if you're concerned about errors, you probably would prefer the one that's closest to when the original was done, so that there's less time for any potential error to come into the document. So you just prefer the older one. It's it's pretty pretty simple there. Right. So if if there was a Gospel of John, remember written around 90 A.D., if we've got a manuscript copy of John from 500 A.D. and another one from 900 A.D., we're going to prefer the one. Uh, what it says in the 500 one. If there is a difference between the two, we're going to assume the older one, right? If you have a copy of a speech from 10 years after Andrew Jackson gave it and a copy of his speech from 200 years after he gave it and there are differences, you're probably going to go with the older one. Exactly. So that's that's the first principle. And I will say all these principles have to be taken together. They're not One doesn't trump the other, and sometimes you just have to say, I, I don't know that the oldest one is best, but it's a, good, it's a good starting point. Number two, you want to prefer the reading, so if there's a difference between manuscripts, prefer the reading that has a wider geographical distribution. So if there is an error in a text, so you find a document in Alexandria in Egypt, that was a hub of Christianity in the early days. You find a, a, an error or a difference in a manuscript from... Alexandria, and you don't find it anywhere else. You find a lot of them in Alexandria that have that reading, but when you look at a manuscript from Rome and one from Gaul and one from Spain and one from Syria and one from Turkey and maybe one from Israel, and they all have reading B and reading A is only found in Alexandria, you're probably going to choose the one with a wider geographical distribution because it's at, at this day and age, travel wasn't instantaneous like it is now. And it's much more likely that a, if there was a difference introduced, it would be repeated in the same place rather than spread out. So that's why you always want to look and see where are they all coming from? And there are different text types like the Eastern and the Western and so on. And uh, sometimes there are groupings of them. 
And you want to try to depend on the one that is the most widely spread out, right, Zach? And again, this is that that decentralization point I was making that, you know, we have this ability, which means that even if even if we're concerned, oh, I'm, I'm, I think that maybe in this one city there was that they introduced this problem into the text that that to try and change it. OK, but we can check that. They, they, they can't buy, you know, by making one change, they can't change all of the other texts that are getting copied and preserved in many other geographic locations. And so because the, the preservation and the copying and the use of the New Testament is so spread out, those documents are cross-checking each other. It's like you have everything has to be go back and be verified to all of this other evidence, and it allows us to catch either honest errors or sometimes there were like let's say there were people that they were cults that would say, oh no, we don't use this canon, we use this other one. Well, you can check that because there's churches in all these other places throughout the Roman Empire that are using the full canon, and they're all writing down and saying, no, we don't agree with them. They're using this variant, right? So yeah. it's, it's a good process to be able to check these things. Yeah, not all variations are created equal. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, you maybe have felt this way before where it's like, that that guy doesn't speak for me. Why, why does he, you know, he, he's one guy with a weird idea and everyone's going to, well, we have to give him equal airtime. It's like, no, uh, because everybody else is disagreeing with him. So number three, you want the reading that is attested by the greatest number of text types. Now, a text type is what we were describing before. A Greek manuscript is a text type. A church father quotation is a text type. A translated version is another text type. You want the one that is attested by the greatest number of those. Let me give you an example. A church father quotes John 3.16, and he doesn't include at the beginning, for God so loved the world. He just jumps in and says, God gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes. And we might look at that and we say, oh, wow, that's very interesting. What, did it originally not include that? Like, did the original say that uh, never include that bit about love? Was that added later? Well, if you then see that the version that has for God so loved is quoted by other church fathers and it's in a lot of the translated versions and it's in most of the Greek manuscripts, well, you want to go with that one because it's it's got more text types it's much more likely that that church father quoted it incorrectly or just in, in pieces than that all the other copies are wrong. So you can I think these all make a lot of sense. The older manuscript, the wider distribution, and the greatest number of text types. And this is kind of how you begin laying out uh, which, which piece of paper are we going to start translating from in the first place. Now, once we've done that, we're going to start evaluating the internal evidence. So I'm going to, again, use David Allen Black here and, and his principles, and he didn't make them up, that he's, he's put them in a good format. So let's say you've got two, two copies of, of a Bible book, and they are more or less equal on the external evidence. It could be either one, and they differ from each other. So one verse is quoted differently in this version and not in this one over here. So what are the principles that you go through in order to determine which one was original? You start, first of all, with the shorter reading. You prefer the shorter reading. This is based on the assumption that a scribe is much more likely to add to the text than to take away from the text. That is much more likely that somebody is going to include an extra word or two to help make it clear than to take away. And we, we know that this is true because we have 
history. We can look at the the documents, and as time goes on, they get longer. They don't get shorter, but things are included. Sometimes there's a, a marginal note that gets included in a translation, or sometimes a, a scribe will say, you know, thank God the Father, and they'll add, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Like Things right. tend to, to grow over time. Yeah, and, and so, again, this is just... If the thread you kind of see in all these things is you're trying to protect against what would be the most likely thing that would happen, right? Like you said, is it more likely that this one church father just gave a, a kind of off-the-cuff quotation? You've done that before, right? You're talking to a friend and you just give a quotation of scripture that ends up being kind of a paraphrase because what you remember. Is it more likely that that happened or that... There, there, there was a different bad version of this that was copied in 70 other versions throughout history. No, that, that doesn't make sense, right? No, it's more likely that he just gave that, that, that quick one. Okay, is it more likely that a scribe would remove parts of what he was seeing on the page and not copy them down, and that's the error, or that he would see it was copied and say, oh, it only has the father, it should have these other things, and add things? It's more likely that he would quickly write down an, an addition rather than knowing the reverence and the care that they had that he would keep things back. So yeah. it's just it's trying to protect yourself against basically well, which which thing makes more sense that it would accidentally happen to protect against scribal errors. Yeah. Now, none of these, again, should be used in isolation. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But I, I think this one in particular uh, can be overused. It's a good rule, but it also can be overused. And it, and it's it you start to strip things down. I don't, I don't know of any major examples, but, it, you know, it can happen. So, again, all of these working together. Number two, this might sound odd at first, but you want to prefer the more difficult reading what does that mean? Like when you read this passage, which one is harder to accept? So is, is it, that doesn't seem like something Paul would say, or that doesn't seem like something the early church would say. And uh, the reason you do that is because a scribe is more likely to smooth out a difficult passage than to introduce confusion. This can also be used in terms of grammar. Peter, for example, is notorious for having bad, or not bad, just not literary grammar in the way that he writes. And sometimes these brilliant Greek uh, Christians that came later would try to help him out a little bit <laughs> and, and then try to include stuff. And so it's like this, this verse is very hard to understand, but this version over here is much easier to understand. Well, it's much more likely that somebody went in and smoothed it out. And so even if it is bad grammar or even if it is tough to understand, I'd rather have that because it's God's word than somebody else's interpretation. And that's really what it amounts uh, to come later. Right. I mean, you, Zach, I'm sure you've had verses you come across where you're like, I really am not quite sure what that means. Yeah. And uh, you, it's, it's, it's tempting to want to come in and, and, and fix it, but we, we can't do that. Right. And, and again, this is, this is kind of showing like, look, the beauty of this process is you can even see where scribes would do that. And the reason you can see that that's happening, like you can track that is you can compare it against other versions and say, oh, I see, you can literally, you have the evidence to say, like a detective, oh, I see what happened there, here. This scribe read that passage, said, there's no way it says that, and tried to be helpful. And you can prevent that error, basically, by looking at all these other versions. So that we just have all this evidence that allows us to do that. We see this a lot in the Old Testament uh, when it will say things that God did uh, that were threatening to later uh, Jewish theology, for example, hmm. when it says that... Uh, I think it's what says Abraham who stood before the face of God. 
And they're like, no, 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 you can't stand before God's face. So in the Septuagint, they translated it that, that Abraham who stood before God, or they would, they didn't, they knew that the Greeks were sensitive to the idea of God's having actual literal bodies. So when it says God held them in his hand, they would say God held them by his strength or something like that. Uh, it's much more difficult to read. He'll cover you with his pinions and his feathers and right. right? But that's what it says. Keep it. So again, another principle to include. Number three, you're going to evaluate the book as a whole. You will prefer the reading when there are two variants. You prefer the reading that is most consistent with the author's style and vocabulary. Most consistent with the author's style and vocabulary. So if you've read through the Gospel of John, the books, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, uh, Revelation, he talks a lot about love, in case you haven't noticed. (laughs) He talks a lot in terms of opposites, light and darkness, death and and life. He has Jesus referring to God as his father more than anybody else. So if we have a textual reading and in one of them, it's using the terms light and darkness or, or whatever it is, talking about love. And then another one where John uses a, a metaphor or an illustration that he's never used before, we should be inclined to choose the first. So we say, all right, th- this one sounds like John. Now, you can get into a lot of trouble with this because you can (laughs) have theological presuppositions about what Paul would and would not have said, for example. And there are people that will do this. They'll say Romans and Galatians and 1 Corinthians are definitely Paul, but these other ones can't be because they they don't sound just like Romans and Galatians which is foolishness, So, but it is a, a good rule uh, because you want to make sure that somebody's not just coming in with their own ideas and their own theories and putting them in there. Uh, this is, for example, maybe you've seen these brackets in your Bible before. This is why many people feel like the adulterous woman, the story of the adulterous woman should not be in the Gospel of John. And maybe you, you read that and you react to it. So how can you say that? Well, when you read it in Greek, that little short section includes an awful lot of words and turns of phrase that John never uses anywhere else, right? Now, that's not definitive, but it does make your eyebrows raise up a little bit. Also, if you read that chapter in context, it kind of seems like that story comes out of nowhere because what happens before and after that seem to flow together really nicely. Uh, and we also have ancient versions of that story that are included in the Gospel of Luke, for example. So that's one of those things where this is almost certainly scripture. I would say almost, I'm convinced. This is certainly scripture, but perhaps it didn't belong in this exact location. And that that's a with author style, author's vocabulary kind of thing. Um, and that's where those objections come from. I don't think they're great objections personally, but that's where that comes from. So yeah, Zach, I'm sure you're familiar with my own little ticks and my own little turns of phrase that I use when I preach. Yes. And I'm bit. sure you'd be able to read the text of a sermon without hearing it and say, oh yeah, that's definitely Tyler because right. that's how he talks. Right. And, and this is exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. And like you said, this is an important one that you don't want to take any of these. And I would say, especially this one, you don't want to take any of these. And as you're trying to do exposition or, or read up on these, you don't want to take any of them in a vacuum and start c- carving up things or, 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 or picking certain readings of the text based on one of them. They have to work together. Um, And this kind of relates to the next one as well. Yeah. And the next one, number four, is you want to prefer the reading that fits the context best. Uh, So if we're talking about the love and grace of God and in the middle of it says, but watch out because fiery, thundery judgment is going to blast you all in the face. And then it goes right back to love. You go, okay, one of these documents has that line and one of them doesn't. So we probably want to prefer the one that fits the context better. 
uh, that would be an example of the shorter reading working better as well right. too. Uh, if, if a verse is in some manuscripts but not others and it introduces a new topic in the middle of another subject, then you should be not, not necessarily rule it out, but we say, okay, now the Bible was, is written very well structured and very well outlined and organized. So why is this? We either need to come to understand a reason why, or perhaps this version over here that doesn't include it is the better reading. And then number five, this one is actually specific to the, the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels. Zach, what are the Synoptic Gospels? So the Synoptic Gospels, there are three Gospels that typically tend to align with each other in, in the way that things are laid out and what's contained in them. And then there's a Gospel that is not Synoptic, that is a little bit different in some that's ways. John. Right, in John. So we, we tend to... When we talk about the Synoptic Gospels, we're saying the, these their stories tend to align a little bit, and then John tends to have, here's a different story, here's a different thing. And so the, it's just a way of categorizing them based on what's contained in them. Right, and Synoptic is a word that means to see together, because it's kind of looking at it from the same perspective. You've noticed this, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of have the same stories, the same parables. There are differences, of course, but they, you know the same lines, and then John is very different. And in fact, there is a church historical reason for that. I believe this is in Eusebius. It might be from a different church father, but uh, John, the apostle, was being begged by the the church as he got older and all the other apostles were gone. They were begging him to write a gospel, to write his story. And what church history tells us is that John didn't want to because he thought Matthew, Mark, and Luke were sufficient. And, and I would say probably Luke primarily because Luke tried to bring it all together. But they said, you need to, we need to hear your story. And so John traditionally was written to tell the story of Christ, but to tell different stories that hadn't been included in the first three, mm -hmm. to include different sermons that hadn't been included in the first three, and also to be much more instructive rather than uh, just reporting the facts, if you know what I mean. And that's why John is, is so different. Now, synoptic gospels, when you come to textual criticism, if you have differences between two documents, prefer the reading that is the least harmonious with parallel accounts. What do I mean by that? I mean, if you have a, 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 you're trying to figure out a passage in Mark, let's say Mark, and you have two versions in front of you, and one of this, the versions of Mark is exactly how it's written in the Gospel of Luke. The other one is close, but not exact. You would want to prefer the one that is not exact. And the reason we say this is because we, we have documented examples of scribes altering the synoptic gospels, monks later on, that would try to make them stand in perfect unity with each other. So if you see the Lord's Prayer, for example, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the newer translations is quite different. One of them is longer and has most of what we are used to. One of them is a lot shorter. And uh, we say, why is this different? When I was growing up reading my, my King James Bible, they were always the same. Well, that's because we know that later on, the church, well-meaning church <laughs> folk said, oh, but they forgot, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. It's like, well, thank you for that. But Matthew includes it. Luke doesn't. Leave it out of Luke. I want to know what the autograph said. So right. we we want we should expect the passages to be similar but not identical. And again, general principle, because I, I think in many cases it's obvious that at least Luke was dependent upon the other two and probably included some of their phraseology on purpose because that's what he said at the beginning of Luke. I'm just going to make one more point before we kind of trans 
transition away from talking about the manuscripts and start talking about translations. It's really, really important that as you hear all these, you don't you misunderstand what we're talking about. Again, this is the process of textual criticism. This is not the same thing as maybe you've heard, maybe you've heard about like the Jesus seminar, for example, that sat there and everybody raided, basically did yes, Reddit voting. Not on, at all. Right. Not well, at oh, all. well, I think that's probably what Jesus said, but I downvote this one. This is not the same thing. When we're talking about using these principles, we don't mean coming to the text of scripture, like your your Bible you hold in your lap, and using these principles to say, I don't think that verse belongs here. Right. Yes. That's not what we're yes. talking about. We're talking about the process of comparing two different documents, two different existing documents exactly right. of scripture and saying, okay, if this one varies from this one, how do I know which reading is closest to the original autograph? That's all we're doing. We're not trying to add or subtract from what's written. We're trying to look at what is written and yes, make sure exactly. we can harmonize the small differences. And it's really important you understand that we're typically talking about grammatical differences yeah, here. little well, tiny things, tiny yes. tiny things, but, but they're important because we want to know, right? So we're not talking about and it, like like Bruce said, we're these are not. Oh yeah, you know, in this one version, they, they they've totally said that Jesus is not God, and we need to decide whether that's the right version. That's that's not what we have here. No, let me read that quote again. The yeah. variant readings about which any doubt remains among textual critics of the New Testament affect no material question of historic fact or of the Christian faith and practice. There are no variant, variants, not variations, variant is the word. There are no variants that are threatening doctrine, that are threatening the story, that are threatening anything that you believe about Jesus Christ, salvation, any of that. In, in most cases, it's things like, does he say, thank God or thank the Father? It's, it's like that. It's like, well, what difference does it make? You, you're catching on here. Right. The, these things are important. There are, I've already pointed out some of the big ones, uh, but most of them are just, they're just simply gram grammar. It's like, did he say, you know, did he include the definite article here or didn't he? Or did he say faith and hope or just faith here? Right. Like it's, you know, it, it can be not silly because it's not silly, but it can be a little laughable when you realize what a big deal people like to make out of all the variants in the New Testament texts. No, they're not affecting anything materially related to faith and practice. So, well, and praise the Lord, yeah. we have all of these people who are doing this work. Yep. You know, we talk about people like the United Bible Societies or different groups that are carefully working on translations and, and textual criticism. And this is all, again, this is happening in a very open and and obvious way. This is not... Yeah, this is the process. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing else behind it. Like, th right. we're telling you what it is right now. And it's all open source. Like I said, all of these documents are available. You can... Anybody can see them and look at them and analyze them. And there's a massive amount of information that helps tell us that what we're reading is the, cl the closest and next best thing to having the autograph sitting in your lap, yeah. which is amazing and, and yeah. really encouraging. I mean, and let me run through these principles one more time, just to, for textual criticism. Number one, give precedence to the older manuscript. Number two, prefer the reading with a wider geographical distribution. Number three, prefer the reading attested by the greatest number of text types. That's external evidence, now internal. Number one, the shorter reading. Number two, the more difficult reading. Number three, most consistent with the author's style and vocabulary. Number four, the, the reading that fits the context best. Number five, that is least harmonious with parallel accounts. Now all these principles can be taken too far. As we've said many times, uh, I think I'll give you an example of one when the principles are in contradiction to each other. Mark chapter 16, you've maybe heard of the long ending of Mark, 
we have, uh, I think, two or three different endings to Mark. None of them include, uh, are, are different from each other. It's just the longer one has all of it, the middle one has some of it, and then the shorter one has none of it. And there are many who think that Mark should end at Mark 16, verse 8. And we say, why is that? They say, well, because the shorter reading. And there's other reasons too, but for the shorter reading, right? Things would be more likely to be added. But then again, if you end with Mark 16, 8, the gospel ends with, and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. <laughs> I think that that is a greater violation of context than adding what comes later. So that's why I'm, I'm a proponent for the long ending of Mark. Also, because even if you add it, you're not changing any matter of doctrine or faith or practice. I mean, it, that's that's kind of the big one. We're spoiled to live when we do. So yeah. I, I hope you know this. I hope you can see this, that we started out with, we have all these these manuscripts. For the step one is we have them and they exist. Number two, how do we figure out what the original would have said? That's this process of textual criticism. So the step three for today is translation. Okay, so we have the manuscripts. We've done the process of textual criticism. We have a base text in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And I say one of the most common questions I get as a pastor is which translation is the best? People will say, I want to buy a Bible for my nephew or something like that. What's a good translation? And uh, Or how can I be sure the Bible is translated correctly? And these are very good questions because if, unless you speak Greek and Hebrew, you are at the mercy of translators. And uh, that's why we, you, you need to know the process of translation. So I, we, let's, let's take a look at this here because uh, you, need, you need to know these things and I, I hope it'll bring you some assurance too. Number one, the Bible was not written in English. What? I hope we all know that. <laughs> uh, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. It has some very small sections in Aramaic from Daniel and places like that. And the New Testament was written in Greek, specifically something called Koine Greek. And the difference right away between these languages is, is crazy. He Hebrew is very poetic. It's very visual. It reads right to left instead of left to right. And then uh, you've got Greek, which is very precise and very, very logical, very mathematical in the way that it reads. And the letters are quite similar to the letters we use today. And we, we talk about the alphabet. The first two letters of Greek are alpha, beta. That's where that word comes from, alphabet. So when we're translating this, You've got some difficulties, and uh, especially with Hebrew, which is, all right, not only is it a foreign language, but there's no vowels. So we look at cognate languages again. Uh, you've, you've got a lot of poetic imagery. Um, there were some, you know, I took Hebrew in seminary, and God love them. There were some guys that rocked and rolled in their Greek classes because they were very, they were smarty pants, egghead kind of guys. And, you know, they could understand the mathematical precision of Greek. But then you get into Hebrew, and it, you gotta, you just gotta flow with it, man. You gotta roll. It's poetic, like it's not to say nothing of the fact that most of it is poetry in the first place. But the the word for Hebrew in Hebrew for arrow, there is no word for arrow. It's son of the bow, <laughs> and that, that frustrated a lot of my my more nerdy friends in in seminary. But uh, we can translate it. We we are very sure about what we have to say. And Greek is a little easier because Greek is uh, has been very well attested, very well preserved. At least our culture has descended in large measure from Greek, from Latin culture. Uh, it's Koine Greek, which is the word for common, like koinonia, which means fellowship, right? We have things in common, community. Uh, 
And Luke, Acts, Hebrews, some of these books were written in a more elevated classical style, but for most of them, they were written in the language of the common people. And this was actually a point of uh, ridicule for the early church. It's like, look at this. This isn't even good rhetoric, right? In a <laughs> culture that valued rhetoric and that kind of thing. Uh, so you got to learn both languages if you're going to translate this, which is why people specialize. And I would say that if you are a pastor or a teacher and you handle the word, uh, you should try to learn Greek and Hebrew. And if you're not going to do that, you should at least learn enough so that you can use the tools that are available to understand what's what's significant about the, the base language. So uh, you don't need to learn all of it, Zach, right? But I mean, you should at least be able to, when somebody says, you know, that you've got like a predicate nominative here, or you've got uh, something in Hebrew. This is, oh, it's a, it's a cognate accusative. You've got to be able to kind of know what some of those things are. Would you agree? And as somebody who is, you know, Tyler has spent a lot of time studying this stuff and is really proficient with it. As somebody who spent less time, I, I did a little bit of Greek in, um, in college and have not studied Hebrew, uh, uh, like in any formal way. Um, the tools exist to help you to, to at, at the very least protect you from making bad mistakes in the way that you're interpreting from doing, you know, bad past. We talk, we joke sometimes about pastors, Greek or pastors, Hebrew, where you make a big, strong point, And then someone who maybe knows the Greek or Hebrew better is like, yeah, that's actually not what that the point of that language point is doing. So oh, I love those people. So you, much. you know, the, the, the tools, <laughs> the tools exist to help you to prevent you from making those mistakes. And, and I rely on them a lot. I'm all the time going to Blue Letter Bible and looking at the interlinear and, and they can pull out all of these tools that will help you to understand what's going on, even if you're not a master of those languages. So you, you don't have to feel afraid of it, but I would encourage you to dig into those tools to make sure that you can use them, whether or not you're, you could go off and translate that passage yourself. You don't necessarily have to, but you do have to know how to use the tools to analyze things and make sure you're not making mistakes. Yeah. and. If what I mean by this, I think that a good goal for you, if you're a pastor, or your teacher, is that when you have a commentary and it starts talking about what the Greek says, get to the point where you don't just kind of yada yada skim past that, but that right. you're able to read it intelligently. And even if you couldn't do the work for yourself, to be able to benefit from the work from other people. So Greek and Hebrew, those are the languages. And uh, I think anybody who's bilingual, if you ever took Spanish or French in school, uh, you understand that most languages do not directly correlate word for word. So I've spoken in some foreign countries before, and I'll say a short little sentence in English, and then my Russian translator will talk for a minute or two. Right. Uh, or I'll be the opposite of that. You know, I would I would say something in Nepal, and I just kind of make a, you know, I think it was a pretty complex sentence, and my translator will just kind of say a couple words. And you can start to question that sometimes. You are saying all of my words, right? But languages are so different. One of the things they tell you when you're in translation is do complete sentences. Don't do fragments because the language probably doesn't work like yours do. So you can see right away, there's not going to be a direct correlation. And people will say, well, why don't they just take the Greek word and make it English? Well, it's not that <laughs> it's not that simple. Right. It's not that simple in Spanish. It's not that simple in in. I, whatever language you speak, Chinese or Japanese or anything like that, you know, it's, and English is tricky too, because ling, English is a comp, is a composite language. We've got old English in there, Latin's in there, Greek's in there. There's a lot of French in there. And uh, so how we translate from two ancient languages into a modern living and constantly changing language, a mishmash language 
It's how you do this. And you might, this might seem so basic to you listening. Like, really? Are we really talking about this? Yeah, because how you translate your Bible is dependent on how you're going to approach the problem of words not having a one-to-one correlation. So there are two schools of thought of how to translate the Bible. Most Bible translations will use a blending of the two, but let's talk about them. The first one is called a literal translation or a word-for-word translation. Now, Zach, I hear that. And I think, oh yeah, that one. <laughs> I want the literal one. I want the, Don't give me something that's not literal, not word for word. What do we mean by that when we call it a literal translation? It doesn't mean that other translations that don't follow this, you know, schematic or this, this way of translating aren't literal or they're just making things up. It just means that this is going to prioritize the order and the kind of relations grammatically of what the original said over readability sometimes even. So if you've ever cracked open, I I used to read a whole ton of, and I still love the New American Standard. And if you've ever cracked open the New American Standard and read it and asked yourself, why is Yoda reading the Bible to me? (laughs) Then you'll kind of understand like, okay, yeah, I, I can see what's going on here, but that's not how we would say it. And that's because the translation committee of the New American Standard Bible is prioritizing this is exactly how the Greek sentence was put together or how the Hebrew sentence was put together rather than this is the ideas behind that that I'm trying to convey to you. And so they're prioritizing exactness to the original documentation, um, yeah. which is handy to know. So as you read it, you say, oh, I can, yeah, that, that's a little hard for me to chew on, but at least now I know that I'm seeing. It's not very poetic, maybe. Right, but, but I'm it, seeing I can what get the original how looked it like. Flowed, like in, mm-hmm. in that language, this right. is how it went. Uh, so the advantage of this would be you get the exact syntax, as you just said, you get the exact figures of speech, and uh, the old King James Bible, right, has the bowels of of mercy. Right. And we hear that, we go, that's disgusting. <laughs> Bowels of mercy. Now, the newer translations will usually say something like a heart of mercy. Mm-hmm. Because they say, well, look, nobody knows what bowels of mercy are, but when we talk about mercy, we talk about the heart. That's our organ. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not a literal translation, is it? Uh, literal would be bowels. And so there's the, the advantage is there's little opportunity for your interpretation to sneak in. Downside is that they're often a little wooden. They can be hard to understand. Uh, I'm going to read now. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 in the New American Standard Bible. And that that is the, uh, that's the... The farthest to the extreme of of literal translations out there. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So that not of yourselves, right? We're used to that phrase, but when was the last time you used that that word, because he's translating a genitive there. That's a literal translation. Now, the counterpoint, the other half is a dynamic translation philosophy or a thought for thought. So you have literal, word for word, dynamic, thought for thought. This translation is going to focus on communicating the meaning of a passage as clearly as possible. They're going to be less concerned with the exact words being used as much as they are with communicating the point they were trying to make. So they'll go, like I said, thought for thought or phrase for phrase rather than using the exact literal words. Uh, The New Living Translation is a dynamic translation. And I want to make this very clear. This is not the same thing as a Bible paraphrase. The message, for example, from Eugene Peterson is not a dynamic translation. It is a Bible paraphrase. So he's kind of reading it and then writing it in English 
to get the gist, but it's it's not going to be what it said. The New Living Translation is still tied to the text in a much stronger way, but it's it's going to work to make it easy to read and easy to understand as opposed to giving you the exact phrase and the exact words. And uh, the advantages here, I mean, they're very easy to read. I love the New Living Translation. I'm actually reading through it right now. And, um, you know, the, the prophets especially make a lot more sense when you read them in the new living right. because they, Oh, that's what he's getting at. And they, they'll, they'll kind of, rather than maybe they'll have a metaphor. They'll say, you know, your harlotry has driven me to anger. I'm just making something up. Right. And what they will say is your idolatry is like adultery. And it's made me angry. It's like, Oh, I get that now. He's not talking about prostitution. He's talking about idolatry in this passage, but he's comparing it to prostitution. So the disadvantage, of course, would be the possibility to sneak your own interpretation in there. And uh, you're, you're further separated from the exact words themselves. But, uh, yeah, Zach, why don't you read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 in the New Living Translation now? So this is in a dy- more dynamic way. It says, God saves you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. So again, you can you can even see as you're reading that that's a ve- that's much more closer to probably even how we would phrase things, and not just the words we would phrase it, but the way we would articulate it maybe in grammar, which makes it really easy and it kind of pops at you. It jumps out for a modern reader, which is helpful. And there's yeah. nothing the matter with that. You know, a lot of times people will sometimes say, "Oh, well, that's just the easy way," and you need to look it's important that you understand God's word and that it yeah. speaks directly to you. And that's why I think it's important. And we'll kind of say, I, I think you can do both, right? Yes, like, well, why choose? You should kind of use all of the tools you have, both the structural exactness of a, of a, of a word for word and the kind of dynamic um, ministering to your heart of a thought for thought and put those together and get them both as you're reading and studying. And your, your pastor probably does this anyway. Mm. Like if he, let's say he reads from the New King James or the New American Standard or something that's a little more word for word. And, you know, he, he might say, to use the verse that we just read, he'll read from the New, the NASB, it is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So he kind of gives the word for word, but then that you can understand it. He immediately gives a more dynamic translation or, or paraphrase, I guess, in that case. Um, and most Bible translations are going to land somewhere in between. The New King James, English Standard Version, they're going to lean towards a more literal. Uh, the NIV is more dynamic. And um, the New Living, of course, is very dynamic in a, in a good way. I'm a, I'm a big proponent of that one. And if you want to know what your Bible is, open up to the preface. Maybe you've never read the preface of your Bible before. And it'll tell you. It'll tell you if it is a mostly dynamic or literal translation. You know what those words mean now. And you can evaluate and say, all right, so this is what I can expect from this. And maybe they'll even tell you we've tried to blend the two. Here are the cases where we went with literal. Here are the cases we decided to go with dynamic. And I'm really not going to take sides on these I I think that they're both, like Zach was saying, to be used. If you want to do maybe an in-depth Bible study, get a a literal translation. And if you're just trying to read through the Bible, maybe if you're new to this and and that old-fashioned language really confuses you, get a a dynamic translation. But I would say none of you should limit yourself to one. I I think if, let's say, if you can't read Greek or Hebrew... But if you say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay out a new American standard, a new King James, an NIV, and a new living. I'm going to read this verse in all four translations, and I'm going to compare them. That's about as close as you can get. And that will then allow you to 
be functioning like somebody who knows the text, even if you don't know those old languages yourself. And you can do that very, again, you can go to Blue Letter Bible. It's free. You can pop open a verse on there and hit Bibles, and it will show you tons and tons of different translations rendering. And by about the fifth one, you're going to say, wait, these are all kind of the same. And the answer is yeah. yes. <laughs> like it's a translation. And this shows us, again, this because sometimes you'll read these crazy things on the internet. Well, all these translations are corrupted. Well, okay. But you can go check. <laughs> you can check all those translations and see how they're clearly working from the same document and trying to express it in a way that's faithful to that document. And you're not going to come upon a translation, I promise you, where all of a sudden you get to a verse and this one translation says a totally different thing that corrupts the meaning of the text. That, that just isn't yeah, the case. If it does, I mean, set it aside. Right. You but, know, you and, know. and if there's going to be something in a, in a verse that's going to be different, then maybe they're going to take a different reading, mm-hmm. a different textual critical re- reading of a passage. It'll say so. It'll be in the right. footnotes. It'll tell you that this is what we did and here's how these other translations put it. So it's, it's kind of paying attention to uh, the other pieces of that book in your hands, not just the text, but the uh, the footnotes and the cross-references and the preface and uh, all, all the kind of things like that. Now, what do we learn from this? Here's a, an important lesson I want to make. Do not get hung up on the English wording of a Bible verse to make a theological point. This is a problem that we run into, and it's understandable because we have English Bibles, but I'm talking about if you're trying to not not just state what the text says, but you're trying to say, because it says it this way in English, that is how it must be interpreted, you're going to start to run into trouble. Uh, for example, there's, I can't remember exactly where it is, in the book of Revelation, where it says, uh, I think John says that we sang, and, he's, and that's been used as a argument for the rapture of the church, that if we, meaning we as the church, are there singing, then it, it's a good indicator that... Uh, that that is the church is in heaven during the time of the tribulation. Now, I remember hearing a Bible teacher do this, and I had mine open. I didn't have an old King James, and it said they. It didn't say we. It said they. And rather than go to what the Greek text said in order to answer that question, the guy started talking about how much he loved the King James version of the Bible. And, you know, how many people prayed and the martyrs that died, and that's why I trust this one. It's like that. that's all very compelling, but I want to know what the text says. And just, mm-hmm. and yeah, I don't think that, that that argument stands or falls on that particular point. But again, you can't just rely on the English. And I think those that are of the King James only stripe tend to do this the most. They say, I believe this because it's how the King James Version phrases it. And you say, but if you look at the Greek that the King James is translating, that's not that sense is not as strong in the original languages as it seems in English, which is why none of the others have it. So if somebody is going to do this, emphasize the concept rather than the word. Like what what is the the closest thing to the autograph we have say? And in most cases, this isn't going to be necessary, but, you know, translation and textual criticism can really mess up some of your favorite Bible verses. You know, you memorized it one way in Awanas or something like that, and now it's different in your Bible. The reason we do this is because we want to know what the text said when it was written. And I think we're very lucky to live when we do, to, yeah. to have all of these things available to us. Absolutely. And this is part of the process. Don't be scared of this. This is part of the process of rightly dividing the word, digging into it, making sure you're, you know, not, you're not just 
proof texting, grabbing the, a phrase you read in an English Bible and basing a whole thing on that. That's that's really, that's kind of the basics of interpretation, right? We don't want to be doing that. We're, we're digging in and being careful as we read and interpret God's word. And that's something you can do. Anybody can do. If you're listening to this, you have the tools available to you to do that. And that's the exciting thing is that none of this is secret or no. or there's, there's big gaps we don't understand. It's all right there for us, which is really, really cool. Yeah. So can we trust our Bibles? Yes. The answer is yes. I, I think that just about every new translation that comes out is great. It, and I'm sure there are exceptions, but most of the ones that you're probably familiar with, right, they're fine. I have my preferences of which one I prefer, but you know, you look at the process and you look at what they did and where they got it, and it's, it's all good. And I, I think that we got to trust the sovereignty of God a little bit here. Trust that the Holy Spirit is able to preserve the text from the moment of revelation and inscripturation and canonization through all the way textual criticism and, and translation. You say, I don't might, not, might say, I don't like the way God that the Bible came about. Well, that's the way that God brought the Bible about. That's the way that God brought the Bible to us. Consider the fact that Jesus and the apostles were quoting, in most cases, from a translation of the Old Testament. They were quoting from the Greek. God endorses translations of the Bible in the Bible. And I will say too, as somebody who has studied the Greek and studied the Hebrew, I, and I've, I've looked at it and I've been in, been in it and I've heard all the arguments and everything, they do a good job. Yeah. Like people will say, well, what does it say in Greek? And I'll be like, it says the same thing it says in English. Right. It just says it in Greek. And there are, are some cases where the exact grammar makes a difference, especially in the letters of Paul, which are so tightly argued and formal and things like that. But, you know, if you if you don't want to trust all this, then at least just trust me. I've I've been in there. I've seen all the scary, spooky stuff that Richard Dawkins and Bart Ehrman want to yell about. And it's like the lion has no teeth. I, the scripture is well preserved, and we can have absolute confidence on Sunday morning when you open that Bible. Hopefully, not the only time you open that Bible, <laughs> but you just know this is God's word. Don't feel uncertain because the farther into the process you look, just the more you're going to see the sovereign preservation of God. And that's, that's a remarkable thing, that you're holding the word of God in your lap. Yep, build your faith to study this stuff, guys. There's a quote, I'll quote, close with this quote from Augustine, who says, let us treat scripture like scripture, like God speaking. Mm. And I think that's a pretty good way to wrap it up. Treat it like scripture, because we can be sure that that's exactly what it is. So we took you through the process a little bit. We've already looked at what the Bible means. We've talked about the canon. We've talked about the manuscripts and text criticism and now translation. So now you have an English Bible in your hand. And next time we're going to take a look at, all right, how do we get figure out what this thing means? I'm really looking forward to that. Thanks you all for listening. We will see you next time. 